Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. And I guess we need to get to the first story. <laughs> and, and considering the first story, perhaps we should, you know, tone it down a bit. Yes. Yeah, probably get so. Get it out now while you can. All right. Let me close. And scene. Anyway. <laughs> wow. So. so on to the first story. And the first story is an unfortunate addendum to a story we had last week about Bill Pasternak from the Amateur Radio Newsline, WA6ITF. We reported that he had been in critical condition in the ICU for some time. He's been battling illnesses off and on for a while now, and we learned from Facebook that, uh, unfortunately, things did not work out well for Bill. Cheryl posted on Facebook a few days ago uh, this message from Don Wilbanks, who says, A dear friend of mine has left us after a long struggle with his health. Bill Pasternak, WA6ITF, has taken his light into another room. Bill touched lives all over the world through amateur radio. He was like a big brother and uncle to me. He was my mentor. He was my friend. In addition to being president and co-founder, writer, producer of the Amateur Radio Newsline, Pasternak belonged to the ARRL, the Radio Club of America, and the Quarter Century Wireless Association. He has also enjoyed flying, including stints getting on the air from thousands of feet up. He was the only person ever chosen to receive the Dayton Hamvention Special Achievement Award in 1981 and the Radio Amateur of the Year Award in 1989. In 1995, the league presented him with an ARRL National Certificate of Merit in recognition of his contributions to the furtherance of the goals of the amateur radio service. And he's survived by his wife of 43 years, Sharon, KD6EPW. So all of our thoughts go out to Bill's family and friends uh, during this time. Well, we're sorry for their loss. So in observance for that, we will have a brief moment of silence. Thank you, everybody. And uh, sorry to see that Bill didn't survive his problems, but uh, he left a lasting legacy on the amateur radio community. Yeah, I was shocked because uh, last show we reported that he'd been into uh, the ICU, then he came out, everything was looking good, and it was a day or two later that I saw this post on Facebook. I was shocked. I just couldn't believe it, but sometimes things change in a heartbeat. But turning to some uh, happier news, which we should probably do quickly, it is field day time again. So Yay! Yes, it's coming up Ooh. next weekend, the last weekend in June, which is... Uh, a good time to have field day. It's weather is usually nice. It's warm. People can get out there and do stuff. So, uh, it's Pete, not next weekend it's two weekends. Oh, that's right, two weekends from now. Yeah, each year uh, the ARRL, the Amateur Radio Relay League, sponsors field day is a uh, what they say is a picnic, campout, practice for emergencies, an informal contest, and most of all, fun. Takes place every year uh, for a 24-hour period during the fourth full weekend of June. So for 2015, the event's going to take place uh, during a 27-hour period from 1800 UTC on Saturday, June 27th through 2100 UTC on Sunday, June 28th. 
Those who are setting up prior to 1800 UTC on the 27th can operate only 24 hours. Uh, in conjunction, uh, or as part of the contest, the uh, Radio Amateur Satellite Corporation, also known as AMSAT, is promoting its own version of field day for operation via the amateur satellites. And that's held concurrently, as I said, with the ARRL event. The ARRL event. Yes, that's what I said. Uh, so if you're considering, considering only the FM voice satellite SO50 for your AMSAT field day focus, don't. Uh, unless you're simply hoping to make one contact for the ARRL rule bonus points. Uh, the congestion on FM LEO satellites is usually very intense anyways, but uh, was so intense in prior years that uh, they say that we must continue to limit their use to one QSO per FM satellite. Uh, this includes the ISS, the International Space Station. You'll be allowed one QSO if the ISS is operating voice. You'll also be allowed one digital QSO with the ISS or any other digital non-store and forward packet satellite if operational. So many good contacts can be made on the linear transporter transponder satellite, sorry, including uh, AO73, FO29, and AO7. During field day, the transponders come alive like 20 meters on a weekend. Like I said, depending on where you're living, I know whenever I'm checking onto the satellites, they're busy as heck anyway. So I can only imagine during field day, those who are trying to get the uh, satellite contact for the bonus points or just for saying you got on during field day is it must be phenomenal i i haven't tried yet during field day but it must be pretty interesting even just to listen to uh so they continue the transponders on these satellites will support multiple simultaneous ssb or cw contacts the 2015 amsat field day is open to all amateur radio operators Amateurs are to use the exchange as specified in ARRL rules for the regular field day. The AMSAT competition is to encourage the use of all amateur satellites, both analog and digital. So uh, all your uh, field day information can be found on the ARRL's website, www.arrl.org slash field day. AMSAT field day information is also posted on the website at www.amsat.org uh, slash question mark page, blah, blah, blah. The uh, uh, link will be in the show notes, or you could just go to the amsat.org uh, page and follow the links to uh, uh, their field day information. So, uh, Russ, uh, any plans for a field day this year? I don't really have any plans for field day this year. I, if I do anything for field day, I'll just probably operate as a, you know, one Delta or one Echo, whatever the local station is, uh, from here out of the house, since I do actually have some HF gear I can use. Uh, I do have plans on the 27th, but since field day is a 24-hour thing, uh, it could work out a little bit. One thing I did find, apparently there are some issues with the space station, so they do not have, they, they feel that there will not be any way to contact them, either voice or digitally, for field day. All right. Well, you could just check on AMSAT's uh, website, I'm sure, and they'll most likely have up-to-the-minute uh, information. So. Yeah. so what are you doing, Pete? Well, normally, and for the past few years, we've been, uh, our club has been doing a somewhat elaborate field day uh, outside in the field, trailer, uh, antennas up in the air on a 40-foot uh, extendable uh, um, hydraulic pole, hot dogs and the whole bit. But uh, this year, I guess with austerity measures, uh, the club's not doing anything. And I was a little disappointed because I like the whole 
idea of, of the club getting involved and and you know it's it's like a party it's like a big picnic barbecue the kids would come out so uh i'm going to since we're not having one since the club's having nothing um i'm just going to do it at a friend's apartment my friend lives on a, a fourth floor apartment building so and he's got a tree just across from his balcony so we're just going to have fun throwing an antenna across the tree and uh operating from his balcony so we're it's actually going to be the first time that i'm doing a field day on my own i've always done them with clubs or other entities so um kind of uh, looking forward to operating as a one alpha. I would be operating as a one delta. Well, we could probably arrange something because uh, my equipment will probably be up for the 24 hours. I won't be operating for the 24 hours. I'm not in it for the points of the contest. I, I just like <coughs> the traffic and, and all of the, the, the hullabaloo going on during field day, and it's, it's just fun. And at nighttime, uh, you know, when, when 40 kind of comes alive and, and a lot of people have gone to bed, it kind of becomes more interesting because during the day, people, it's like, uh, you know, call sign category 5-9, call sign category 5-9. It gets tedious. But at nighttime, things tend to get a little bit more relaxed. And people, so, you know, you're operating 15 Delta. Tell me about your setup and your antennas. And people actually talk about the, the technical aspects of what they're doing and the social aspects. And it's a little bit more laid back. So I, I kind of like to operate at night. And, you know, I'll usually do two or three hours in, in the wee hours of the night. But uh, we can probably uh, arrange a, a, a QSO. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, that does sound pretty cool. So we'll work on that between now and two weeks from now. Sounds good. All right. So anyway, get into field day. Even if you don't operate generally, find a club, find a local event, operate from your house, whatever you got to do, get on, or get on the air for field day. Petro uh, VA2 uh, XMX says that uh, let's see members of my club are showing lack of interest as well. So and it seems to be you know that kind of we've had this conversation before where the clubs are you know less and less active in various areas. Some are very active, but overall it seems to be uh, interest seems to be dwindling for some. Um, some of the clubs around here are very very active. However, me being the lazy butt that I am, I don't usually try to go across the city and, and see what's happening in the other clubs, although perhaps I should. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to doing my own thing this year. Yep, sounds good. And I, I have never operated on my own for field day ever, so this it would be kind of cool for me to do that as well. So <laughs> next story, and Cheryl, you dug this one up, uh, as you did with most of these, so go ahead and read this one. Didn't I do all of them? Uh, no, not all of them. Oh, okay, just checking. All right, so I did 99% of them. Anyway, um, I found information on a free online course on satellite remote sensing. There's a new online course on satellite remote sensing made available by the European Space Agency at www.futurelearn.com. It's called Observing Climate Change from Space. There's no fee, and it's state-of-the-art about what satellites do in measuring climate and other factors from space. It's very approachable. You don't need anything like a PhD in rocket science to understand it. Absolutely fascinating and well worth doing. So, we're going to do it. Hope you will, too. Lesson 1 started on Monday, June 8th. Um, and you can go to futurelearn.com and look for Observing Climate Change from Space. So, you guys are doing this. Oh, well, okay. I am. So uh, I plan on doing it, too. It's, it sounds interesting. 
See, I went to the website because I thought it was really interesting too, and I couldn't find this specific course that you were talking about in the notes because I, I actually read the notes tonight before coming on to the show. Ooh. Ooh. And I couldn't find this specific course, but because it started on June 8th, maybe you can't register for it anymore. I'm not sure. That being said, I found a whack of other courses that are free and online. I mean, there's everything from um, history preparing for university, archaeology, discovering dentistry, um, you know, football, English, writing. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. There was a list of, of probably about, you know, 50 uh, free courses that you could sign up for. Most of them are starting between mid and the end of June, run for an average three weeks to eight weeks. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of all kinds of I mean beginning robotics. Uh, let's see what are some of the other ones that I came across. How to succeed at writing applications. I mean, there's even some techie stuff in here. Um, explore filmmaking from script to screen. Blah blah blah. Uh, basic science. Uh, cracking mechanics. Anyways, I won't read them all, but uh, go to the website. There's like there's a whack of stuff here that you could learn, um, and it's it's free. You know, most of the courses are about three hours per week, two to three hours per week. And a lot of them uh, will give you a certificate. I'm not sure what the valid validity of the certificate certificate is, and if you could use it for, uh, um, you know, any other uh, ongoing education that you're taking. But um, um, it's really interesting. Yeah, this is cool. There are there are several of these kind of sites coming up, and actually, one that I've been using for some time is Coursera. C O U R S E R A. It's another one just like FutureLearn, and they do the same thing, and they're all taught by college professors around the world which is really cool and they have some very very in-depth topics i've actually done ones from things as widely varied as uh einstein's theory of relativity and learning how to play the guitar that was one course <coughs> that was not one course <laughs> <laughs> anyway so, check out future learn check out coursera find all the e-learning sites you can they're all great and a lot of them provide you with the opportunity for certification so anyway, moving on knowledge. to... Knowledge is good. Knowledge is excellent. So moving on to open source topics, we have some interesting ones. Uh, the first one is the White House sides with Oracle. Boo! <laughs> 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 Telling the Supreme Court that APRs are copyrightable. Boo! Man, copyright law is just getting way out of hand. But anyway, the Ars Technica reports that the United States Justice Department has sided with Oracle in its dispute with Google. The dispute centers on Google copying names, declarations, and header lines of the Java, the Java APIs in Android. Oracle filed suit back in 2012, and the San Francisco judge back then sided with Google. Yay! The judge ruled that the not that siding with Google is necessarily a good thing, but in this it is a good thing. Uh, the judge ruled that the code in question cannot be copyrighted. Oracle prevailed in an appeal, however. A federal appeals court ruled that Declaring code and the structure, sequence, and organization of the API packages are entitled to copyright protection. Obviously, these people are idiots. Uh, Google maintained that... That's uh, editorializing, by the way. Uh, Google maintained that the code at issue is not entitled to copyright protection because it constitutes a method of operation or system that allows programs to communicate with one another, which is a good argument. The people who voted against it are just idiots. Editorializing. Uh, so anyway, that story came from LWN, and I don't know where this is going, but I have a feeling that it's going to negatively affect programming and programmers uh, very, very soon. 
be wary of APIs and, and any code anymore because the government wants to have a hand in everything. It's just getting nutty. Nutty out there. Surprise, surprise, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Pete, go ahead and read the next one here, since we don't want to talk about all the bad things about copyright law. That's a whole show in itself, or, like, that's a whole podcast in itself, actually. Actually, there is a podcast about that. It's called, I can't remember what it's called. What the hell is it called? Don't look at me. It's uh, Free as in Freedom. And uh, everybody who likes Linux and who likes uh, software freedom and things like that should be listening to Free as in Freedom. Great podcast. So, enough about that. Anyway, Pete, next. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good that you went on because it gave me a chance to uh, finish my cookie. (laughs) (laughs) And and subscribe to Free as in Freedom, right? And yes. Of course, right. Of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Free embedded Linux training materials demystify build root. Free Electrons has posted free de- that's <laughs> Free Electrons has posted free details. It would be ironic if Free Electrons had posted details that were not free. Anyways, <laughs> I digress yet again. Apologies. Free Electrons has posted free detailed training materials for its course for its course on building an embedded Linux project on a BeagleBone Black SBC using BuildRoot. Uh, Last November, Linux training firm Free Electrons posted free training materials for a three-day training course on building an embedded Linux project using, is that pronounced Yocto or Yocto? Yocto project and Open Embedded. Uh, Now the the company has published similar training materials for a course about using BuildRoot. Once again, with the target platform being the BeagleBone Black. BuildRoot is simple, they say, efficient, and easy-to-use tool to generate embedded Linux systems through cross-compilation. Uh, the source is from uh, Linux Gizmos, if you're interested in reading the whole article. Or you can go to uh, buildroot.uclibc.org. Obviously, this is going to appeal to the more techie among our listeners, but if you are, are definitely into kit building and Linux open hardware and things like that, uh, something like BuildRoot might appeal to you. So we try and cover everyone on this show if we can. Have you used BuildRoot? I have not. I have had okay. no reason to use such a thing, but maybe someday. Now's your chance. Maybe so. Or not. <laughs> or not. And I, I, I've never, I've heard of BuildRoot. I have no idea what the uh, Yocto project is, however. No, I don't know what that is either, and I didn't have a chance to look it up. Okay, so, Yocto well, is an open source embedded Linux system. Uh, it's not an embedded Linux distribution. It creates a custom one for you. Open source collaboration project that provides templates, tools, and methods to help you create custom Linux-based systems for embedded products, regardless of the hardware architecture. So for the super geeks among us, there you go. Information you can use. Uh, moving on from that to Microsoft... Uh-oh, we're talking about Microsoft. <laughs> Again? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Microsoft's to les- Linux, <laughs> Microsoft says to Linux users, explain yourself. Redmond wants to know what Linux better. You know, it seems like as big a company as Microsoft is, if they wanted to know Linux better, they could just find out. But anyway, they want to know Linux better so they can build monitoring tools for penguinistas. I don't know that I've ever heard that term before, but... I have. I guess uh, us us Linux folks are penguinistas. Microsoft wants to get better at monitoring Linux. Somehow that sounds ominous. But this article is written as if that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) Redmond on Tuesday took the covers off a new Linux virtual machine monitoring tool. Khalid Moss of 
Microsoft says a significant number of virtual machines on Azure today are running Linux workloads. Well, good on those people for using Azure to run Linux. That's incredible. I love it. Moss is a senior program manager for the Azure Compute Runtime. To help those folks, Redmond has therefore created new monitoring capabilities we have just released, currently in preview, for Linux VMs running Azure. Azure. Microsoft also shouted out to Linux users saying, We want to know more in depth how your organization monitors Linux servers and challenges you face monitoring those Linux machines. So that's interesting. Microsoft is getting their fingers into Linux, their greasy, grimy fingers into Linux. Again, it all sounds ominous to me. Don't but. glare at me. I didn't do it. No, I know you didn't do it, but you're, you're the one who put the story in here. So, Well, it seemed interesting. It is interesting. I'm curious where this is going to go. They're, the story tries to make it sound all nicey-nicey, and this, by the way, came from the register out of the U.K., so I don't know what their stance on Microsoft is. They probably care a lot less about Microsoft than we do here in the States because their reach is not quite that long. I guess we'll see what comes of this. To me, it sounds sinister. Uh, there's speaking of sinister things. There's some chat in the in the chat room uh, about the previous story about the Oracle Google case about API copyrights, which may uh, affect some of the electronic systems in future cars and may not allow you to repair your own vehicle because it the code may be owned by the the, uh, the authors of the code. Yeah, it may be illegal for you to do repairs on your own vehicle if if uh, this plays out the way it is. Well, would that be software repairs or changing the brakes? Well, I don't know. Because changing the brakes is hardware. Right. Like it's changing pieces, so... I, I have a feeling before long the U.S. government will be copywriting things like brake pads, so you'll have to get them from, you know, only authorized sources, and you'll not be able to, you will not have license to legally change your own brake pads at some point, but uh, we're not quite there yet. As long as they're not made by Microsoft, we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I don't want Microsoft making anything that's going to keep me from dying. So. Yeah, well, Cleowick Clu- <laughs> just pointed out that there's software, anti-like software, that control the brakes. They control the brakes. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's all sounds sinister. Maybe we should step up to a more positive topic. Yeah. Okay. So Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. Cheryl, let's read a more positive topic. Okay. Saving laptop power with PowerTop. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah. If there's one thing you want from a laptop, it's a long battery life. You want every drop of power you can get to work, read, or just be entertained on a long jaunt. So it's good to know where your power is actually going. You can use the PowerTop utility to see what's draining your power when your system's not plugged in. Utility shows you power usage for various hardware drivers, but it also displays interesting numbers like how many times your system wakes up each second. Processors are so fast that they often sleep for the majority of a second of uptime. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and this came from Fedora Magazine, and there was actually the information on the story, which will be in the show notes, uh, tells about how to actually set it up and get it working, so... I know, this is so funny because, like, Apollo 11 was powered by three vacuum tubes and a hamster, and right now it's like you have you have so much computing power in your laptop that it's asleep most of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous, but that is the that way it's cool, though. It is very cool. And the hamster had to sleep, too. That's, that's very true. That's when the vacuum tubes took over. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I think we have a title for the episode. 
And we're all looking forward to that. <laughs> Very nice. All right. So moving off, that is kind of cool, though. I might, uh, since we have just purchased a couple of new laptops, might check those out, check that utility out and see how yeah, our laptops are performing. Except that this is a Windows-based system and not Linux. I understand that, but that's going to be rectified shortly. Okay. <laughs> Get so, on that. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Because this is driving me up the wall. It's not like it's the only thing we do in life. All right, moving on to our next segment, Linux in the Ham Shack. I found a couple of stories to, to put in here before we have a, an interview. Uh, so stay tuned for that for the next five minutes or so. Uh, the first is a, a story I found on the blog of uh, Alpha, Alpha 6 Echo. And uh, this was from earlier this month. He was talking about the Flex Radio Control Knob called the Flex Control which is actually a hardware device that is powered by some basic software that allows you to easily have access to some of the functions of your Flex Radio SDR. But it turns out that with some clever reverse engineering, he was able to get more out of it. A Flex Control is the ultimate VFO and radio control accessory for all Flex Radio systems, software-defined radios. Developed by serious contesters, but applicable for all types of operators, the ergonomically designed flex control provides the ability to tune multiple VFOs, RIT and XIT, and a simple turn and or press of the weighted smooth action turning knob. Uh, in addition to the multifunction tuning knob, there are three multi-state programmable push buttons that you can assign a multitude of radio control actions, such as changing the tune step, RX filters, or CW speed, just to name a few. Unlike other tuning knobs, the Flex Control is not another mouse-like device and will continue to control Power SDR, Smart SDR, or your SDR, even if the active Windows program, note Windows program, is neither Power SDR nor Smart SDR. This is known as the focus issue, and the Flex Control solves it, allowing you to have your logging program or any other program active while interactively operating the radio with the Flex Control. Uh, that's very cool. And the software that was released for the Flex Control, written by the guys who created the device, is actually only available for Smart SDR, which is a Windows-only application for Flex Radio. But as I said, AA6E, with some clever reverse engineering, discovered that the interface between the Flex Control and your computer is a basic serial I.O. interface operating like a haze modem at 152 kilobaud. So it's basically a bunch of text commands going over a serial I.O. interface. And using that knowledge, he is actually able to interface the, the flex control using simple commands to operate any device over a serial port. It doesn't even have to be an SDR. It can just be anything you want to control using a paddle-like device with buttons. And therefore, since it's a basic open source technology or an open technology using a simple transport protocol you can use this device which i think costs around 100 bucks to power any project whether it runs on linux or any other operating system and of course there are apis that access serial interfaces for all programming languages across all platforms you can use it for basically anything and that's pretty cool. And if you want details about that, the link to the article on Alpha Alpha 6 Echo's blog will be in the show notes. And the information about the Flex Control actually came from flexradio.com itself and a link to more information about the device, as you're supposed to be using it by the Flex Radio guys, will also be in the show notes. Gotta love clever people. And by the way, 
If you haven't checked out Alpha Alpha 6 Echo's blog, which is at blog.alphaalpha6echo.net, uh, you definitely should do that. He's a very, very smart guy who has a lot of interesting Linuxy type topics. Yeah, I'm actually looking over the blog right now, and uh, he talks about uh, all kinds of different stuff. It's uh, and and quite a few entries too. Like you know, sometimes one every day. Sometimes he skips a few day days. Uh, but uh, yeah, indeed, very geeky and interesting. Yep. If you like to dive in head first to some of the topics that we talk about, he is a good blogger to read about and a good ham radio operator because. He gets real down and dirty into the information. All right, the final story we have for tonight is one that I found. It's actually uh, a little dated right now. It came out about three months ago, but it was really interesting, and we missed it when it first came out. I got this off of Slashdot, uh, and this was a post by our friend and yours, Bruce Perrins, K6BP, the promoter of Codec 2 and all the other open-source ham radio projects. He's probably the the premier force in promoting open source for ham radio after us of course but anyway he he posted on slash dot or there was a reference to a post by him on slash dot uh, slash dort ah, all right slash dort where he says he being bruce says chris testa kilo delta 2 bravo mike hotel and i have been working for years on a software defined transceiver that would be fcc legal and would communicate using essentially any mode and protocol up to 1 megahertz wide on frequencies between 50 and 1000 megahertz it's been discussed here before most recently when chris taught gate array programming in python we're about to submit the third generation of the design for pcb fabrication and hope that this version will be saleable as a developer board and later as a packaged walkie-talkie, mobile, and base station. This radio is unique in that it uses your smartphone for the GUI. Apps to provide communication modes, contains an onboard flash-based gate array, and a UC Linux system. We intend to go for free software foundation, respect your freedom certification for this device. So this is SDR for VHF and UHF, which is kind of cool. The interface, um, it's just going to be a board, so the interface is provided by linking to a smartphone, and it runs Linux. So, like I said, this story is about three months old, so I don't know if the third-gen PCB has actually been created or not, but I'm looking forward to find out where this goes, because it sounds like a very interesting project. And, of course, it will be type accepted by the FCC if they get it released, and it's uh, for for 50 megahertz, i.e. at the bottom of the, or the top, I guess, of the HF band all the way up to gigahertz. Uh, all in one single piece of hardware. So sounds very cool to me. I'm looking forward to see if this thing actually gets produced. Maybe it's out already since your uh, story is three months old. Maybe so. That's true. But I have not seen it. Uh, uh, you they, should check the chat room. Uh, there is already a speaker mic. It replaced the PC. You can do free DV with it. This is Petro who says, uh, are you talking about the SM1000? The SM1000 is the thing for doing free DV, and it does it over HF. Because the SM1000 was done by David Rowe. It doesn't uh, mention anything about David Rohr or the SM1000 in he the article. He said yes. Trying yeah. to find something else on it. Yeah, I don't think this is the SM1000 project. This sounds like something completely different. Anyway, we should probably move on because we're kind of behind time. Like, it's our own Way. fault, but we're behind time. Like always. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, at this point, we need, to talk, we need to get our interviewee on, so I guess I should try and figure out how that's going to happen. <laughs> and hopefully he's paying attention and will answer the phone. That's always helpful, right? Yeah. Well, I hear some noise. Yeah, I'm here. 
Ah, oh, there you are. Okay. Your connection's a little noisier than it was when I we did the test earlier, but maybe you're sitting in front of a noisy fan. In an empty room, there's an echo. The echo we get, yes. So anyway, you you sound fine. So here we go. Anyway, this this person that we are now talking to is Daryl Little, Kilo India Four Lima Lima Alpha, which actually I noticed today when I read it that it looks like Killa. Is that in, is that in, intentional, <laughs> or did you it just was just totally at random? That was just the call sign I got. Oh well, interesting. But I figured it was kind of cool, so I didn't change it. <laughs> It is interesting for, and I didn't know, are they, are they actually uh, assigning KIs in the fourth call area at this point? It seems like really high up in the Ks. Yeah, well, no, that was 10 years ago. I got that, I got that call in 2005. I didn't know the fourth call area had so many hands. Apparently we do, because they're like up to the KUs now or something. Apparently, I live in uh, less populated parts of the country, which, yes, is, is quite true. <laughs> anyway, uh, clearly, we should just move along into my stop doing this whole idle chit-chat thing. But anyway, the reason that we're talking to Daryl is because he was recently our ambassador at the Southeast Linux Fest, uh, which was just last weekend. This last weekend, which was like, you know, ended yesterday. <laughs> you uh, got the stuff that I sent you on Wednesday. You left for Southeast Linux Fest on Thursday. And uh, presumably you set up at Southeast Linux Fest on Friday or late Thursday, I'm not sure which. So uh, why don't you just kind of give us an idea of what your thoughts in general about Southeast Linux Fest for not not for your participation in our ambassador program and doing the stuff for us, but what do you think about self itself this time? Well, um, yeah, I got there Thursday night, so um, and I wanted to set up so I could find a good spot to actually set up the radio and operate during the the event. So fortunately, I found a spot right by a service door where there was a enough of a gap I could get the coax under the door. <laughs> um, and I, I know from attending it last year that there's a, there's a big crossover between the Linux. Um, community and the amateur radio community at, partic- at this particular event. So that's why I, I thought it would be really good to represent um, Linux in the ham shack. Um, and sure enough, on Friday and Saturday, I uh, literally had, you know, at least 50, 60 people each day come by and um, asked a lot of questions about, uh, you know, operating digital modes, um, the, your handouts on the different Linux software um, for amateur radio was real popular. So it just, it's such a wide variety of interests, um, and it just fit right in. Well, that's good. We went to Southeast Linux Fest ourselves the second and third year that Self was, uh, you know, active. This is actually, I think we figured out the seventh year, this was the seventh Self, uh, the first two years were really fun. They were really small, but the the group of attendees was really nice. It was good to talk to all of them. So, what sense do you get of the like total attendance of self this year? How many people do you think there were actually there, not necessarily the ones who just stopped by our booth? I'm I'm guesstimating there was probably between five to six hundred people. I, I know they they were talking about they were hoping to reach like a thousand, but. Um, just just my feeling there was probably 
around 500 or so though with the peak being on saturday might have might have peaked up to 600 on saturday all right that's a fairly well attended event and uh so d- did you see any of the event other than sitting at the booth i i know you had some hope to go to some of the sessions and stuff like that so did you actually do that yeah i did um there there was some um talks on um shell scripting and um python that i got to sit in on uh uh the real fun one was there was a a talk on raspberry pi hacks and uh they were pretty uh entertaining i'm trying to think there was at least one other one i sat in on um but i can't remember right now well, that's quite all right. Now, I know that they were also trying to schedule, I think, a ham radio gathering down there during the course of the event at some point. Did that actually happen? And if so, did you go to it? I wasn't aware of that. I know on Saturday there was going to be a test session. So there there was going to be um, a VE session going on. And I got a lot of questions about that because they saw your sign or your banner and they they instantly thought that maybe we were the ones that were doing the test session. So fortunately, I, I knew the uh, people that was uh, doing that, so I got everybody directed in the going in the right direction. But um, I don't know that there was specifically uh, a gathering, but there was a lot of social activities going on out in the restaurant and bar area. So I might have missed some of what was going on. All right, that's that's cool. So, of the people who came by and, and you know talked to you specifically about what we were there for, what I mean, was there any question or questions that kind of stood out to you? What were the people most interested in, uh, or any particular aspect of you know uh, Linux in the Ham Shack that seemed most appealing to folks? Um, it, it was it was a close tie between uh, just general questions about how to get licensed and uh, basic questions about what what is amateur radio and uh, questions about um, operating in the digital modes and software defined radio. Uh, the the people that were already um, licensed amateurs were like really interested in the the digital setup that I had there for demonstration. So a lot of people were like taking pictures of how I had it hooked up to the laptop. And so it was a close tie between that because a good bit of it was just people curious about amateur radio in general. Now you said you were actually working some 20 meter while you were there. You had a 20 meter rig and you had it hooked up both digitally um, was it? Were you only working digital, like PSK and stuff like that, during the event? Yeah, yeah. I was just doing PSK thirty one, um, and ended up logging about ten, fifteen contacts during the course of the day. Were you actually doing that for people who were there attending, like while they were watching? And you right, know? okay, yeah, yeah. They were interested in it, so I would act. They would come around, and and I had the had the screen on a second monitor so they could see it, and then I could actually demonstrate how um, FL Digi worked and actually make contacts while they're watching. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Now, when we've been to Hamvention, unfortunately, the way it's set up and where we are set up in Hamvention in the part of the arena we're at, it's basically impossible for us to get any kind of a radio signal. So we have never actually had the opportunity to work active radio while at an event so that's 
that to me was really cool that you were actually able to set up and show it like in progress uh, to people who came by the booth. And I was really happy that you were able to do that. And I was also really happy to see the the tweets and the pictures and everything uh, of the setup you had there itself. Because uh, when we were doing it, it was actually in Spartanburg. And the year after we stopped going there, they moved it to Charlotte. So we're not familiar with the venue or anything like that. So being able to see uh, how you had it set up and the way you were operating and, and what you had going there for the attendees was really cool. So I appreciate that. From your own perspective, being there and, and doing this for us, like what was your favorite part of it? What was, and you know, following that, what was your least favorite part of it? Well, I, I think the the favorite part was just um, just meeting lots of people with lots of different background and interests. Um, it's kind of fun to be able to talk to someone that's completely new and. Uh, you know, you can like see see that they're interested and actually starting to get a little bit excited about finding out more. Uh, that's for me. That's the fun part. Um, that the only the only part was just uh, that was on a little bit on the downside. On Saturday, it gets so crowded and it is so noisy that uh, I actually started losing my voice because it was like so hard to talk to people uh, when when you get. 600 some people jammed into that space it gets um you know turns into a mild roar in the background and it gets kind of hard to talk no that's understandable we we have experienced that at hamvention too because twenty five thousand people run through that place and yeah you know there there's the occasional lull and everything where you get a chance to catch your breath and everything but it usually comes in waves people don't come two at a time they come 50 at a time and then sometimes right. you get a break in between as far as your perceptions of interest in the program itself, Linux and the Hamshack, I mean, was there any specific interest in the show, or basically yeah, there just... was? It seems like on Saturday there was uh, just a lot more interest in the show. I think Friday must have been just more uh, people just curious, and on Saturday there was more of the actual uh, amateur radio community and. Uh, there was a lot of people that were interested in the show on Saturday. I think that was what a box of 250 uh, business cards. I probably gave away like three quarters of those cards away. People that were interested in your website and uh, in the podcast. So <clears throat> Saturday was a big day as far as people interest uh, their interest uh, being um, uh, expressed. That sounds good. If you give away that many cards, then hopefully it will spur a little bit of interest and we'll get a few new listeners out of it, which, you know, is the good thing for us. And being there to promote Linux and amateur radio for the community in general is why we do this. We would love to be, we personally as the host would love to be at all these events, but of course we can't because they're all over the world and at all times of uh, the day and night and throughout the year and we can't be at everything. So that's why we have the ambassador program. It's been in kind of a lull, so I'm really glad you were able to pick it up and and do this for us. And I know you're planning on attending the Roanoke uh, Ham Fest when that comes up, and I think it's August. Uh, this is the kind of question that's probably going to shoot me in the foot, but would you recommend doing this to someone else who's listening to this? I mean, would you recommend being an ambassador for the show? Is it worth doing? Uh, did you get enough out of it to make it worth your time? I would, yeah. I, I, I would recommend it. Okay. You know, if if you enjoy teaching and introducing uh, amateur radio and um, 
to others, then it, it's a real good opportunity to, to really um, get out there and meet people and talk to people. So it, it just, um, to me, it was just fun. Just, just being there and sitting at the table was fun. Out of all the people there, there wasn't anybody that was uh, negative or a downer or anything. Everybody was like really interested. Well, that's good. I'm glad you had a good experience, and I, I want to express my thanks and the thanks for the, the hosts here at Linux in the Ham Shack. We really appreciate you going out of your way to do this. I know you were planning on going to the event anyway, and that's um, you know why you're willing to help. I don't think anyone's basically jumped up and said, oh, I'll just go to this event for you, you know, for you, um, which is fine. That's absolutely fine. Because I'm, and I'm also glad that you got to experience some of Southeast Linux Fest itself. Because I personally would be disappointed if I went to the event like that and wasn't able to at least see some of the actual event, rather than being, you know, stuck behind a table all day. And again, I really appreciate you spending some time there uh, for us. So that being said, uh, I'll open this up to questions from either of the other hosts if they have any. And also, do you have any like uh, thing you would change about the program or any comments you? Uh, have about it, uh, positive or negative? Uh, I, I don't think I changed much. Um, I, it, it'll be interesting to see uh, what kind of response I get at the uh, at the Ham Fest. I I think it'll be um, more of an opportunity to talk up the um, the amateur radio the the podcast itself. Um, so yeah, it's not really much I would change. I I think um, a lot of, a lot of people are like the, the, the giveaways. Um, and that's, you know, I know that's, that's hard to, to come up with free stuff to give away, but, um, that's, that's probably just the only hard part is, but not everybody was looking for a freebie. A lot of the people were actually interested in the topic. So that's, uh, that's the only good and bad part I would say. Right. Well, I mean, we're always looking for different ways to promote the podcast. Unfortunately, since this is sort of an out-of-pocket endeavor, we don't have the resources that other organizations have to just come up with things to give out to people. I wish we could do that, but we, we just can't, unfortunately. If we ever come up with something we can give away, we definitely will, because freebies always make it stick in your mind what you know what you got. When you look at it later, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. Maybe I'll check this out, and I I would love to be able to give just give stuff away. One one thing I do know, and we were talking about this the other night, is that Linux in the Ham Shack tends to play better when we're talking about events at Ham Fest than we do at Linux Fests, because when you're talking about something like Linux, which is something you can get for free just anytime you want it, it's it's hard to promote something that you know where you're asking for donations and taking money when it's something that you can otherwise get for free whereas right. when you're going to an event that promotes ham radio where pretty much everything costs money no matter what it is uh it's a lot easier to sort of get over on that and the people are seem to be a lot more responsive to it when you're saying you're pretty much giving something away for free or uh, very close to free so uh right. you I, I would agree yeah that's why that's why i'm really interested to see how it how uh different it will be at the ham fest so I, I, I suspect you'll have a notes. Yeah, I suspect you'll have a very different experience at the Roanoke Hamfest than you did itself uh, regarding the booth. So, Pete, if you're not muted, do you have any questions for uh, Daryl? Or no, I was muted, but uh, no, you did uh, a fine job, and uh, uh, nice to meet you, Daryl. First of all, and uh, thanks for uh, being there. I think that's pretty awesome. 
and it sounds like the event was a great success. Uh, five or six hundred people is uh, nothing to sneeze at in, in any kind of event these days. Yes, indeed. So, uh, do you, do you know what the attendance, the rough attendance of the Roanoke Hamfest is? I mean, off the top of your head, is it something you've attended before? Yeah, I've I've gone the past couple of years. I would say um, two two hundred two fifty. It's a and it's just a one day event. So a lot of people show up really early. So I I know I'm gonna have to get there like at six o'clock in the morning and get a table set up because uh, I think the the peak crowd is around eight o'clock in the morning. That actually sounds a lot like the uh, the Hamfest that I went to I here in Aurora. Say, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was attended by probably about that same number of people, two hundred to two hundred fifty people, and the bulk of everything that happened happened before noon. So, right, <laughs> um, yeah, I expect the experience will be the same or similar, and I hope uh, that. But I do hope that if there are two hundred people who go to that event, that every single one of them stops by the booth and talks to you at least for a minute. Because that's <laughs> right, yeah. So. Anyway, thanks again. I really appreciate that, and I look forward to getting a quick report from you from the Roanoke Hamfest. Which do you remember the dates of that? Because I don't have it off the top of my head. It's uh, the first weekend of August. Okay, I, I think that's actually August first. I'm not sure. All right, I'm not sure either. But we yes, know it's it's sorry if it's on Saturday. It's Saturday, August first. All right. Yes, so. that, then that would be it. Yeah. All right, so if you're listening to this and you get the opportunity to go to the Roanoke, Virginia Ham Fest on August 1st, uh, that would be a great stop by. We'll be there. Daryl will be our ambassador once again. Can't say thank you enough, Daryl. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed self. I really hope you enjoy the Roanoke Ham Fest, and uh, perhaps we will talk to you again after that event. All right, thank you. All right, thank you, and have a good evening. So that was Daryl Little, uh, KI4LLA, our ambassador to the Southeast Linux Fest and to the upcoming Roanoke Ham Fest. So if you get a chance to go to that, you should definitely check it out. So with that, we are down sort of towards the end because um, there was only a short gap in between the last podcast and this podcast, one week instead of two. I do have some music, though, so I'll kick off our little music selection for the night, and then the rest of the show is going to go by pretty quick, so buckle up. It's going to go by fast. I'll be interested to hear the comments about this particular track for tonight, though, because I have a feeling reaction will be varied. Is this more of a Pete tune or a Russ tune? This is more of an I don't know who the hell it's for tune. (laughs) It's more towards what the show is accustomed to playing, it's heavier, but this song is basically straight out of the the mid '80s hair band era. I mean, this Ooh. this group could pass for Motley Crue. Well, if they're anything like Motley Crue, it might be half decent. The group is called Black Star. They're from Trento, Italy. This this uh, album or this EP, five track EP, came out about a month and about a month ago, actually. I actually enjoyed every track on it. I thought they were all decent, very, very similar in style and very approachable as a hair band kind of thing. Uh, the EP is called From the Ashes, and this particular track is called Close Your Eyes. It's not one of the more popular ones on Jimendo, but it's actually the one that I really liked most out of all of them. Uh, so we'll give this a listen, and uh, then we'll talk about it for a minute afterwards.
Black Star. Close your eyes. I actually thought that one was really cool. I liked it. No, it's uh, it was all right. Not my favorite. It sounded very 80s. Uh, I looked up the band. They don't look 80s. I sent you the picture on Skype if you're interested. They look very modern. Um, I looked up the website. Uh, the band was formed in 2000, 2007 when uh, the lead guy was uh, only 14 years old. So uh, he wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps and play heavy metal. Uh, they started playing covers of uh, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Saxon, Metallica, Megadeth, Motley Crue uh, in pubs and things like that. And, uh, and last year uh, they got their big break. Now in 2013 they got sort of a break when they got to play uh, with uh, Chris Slade, the uh, historic drummer of ACDC. So the uh, story is kind of interesting. Um, and yeah, they started when they were 14 years old. I'm, so I'm sorry, did cool. you say Chris Slade was the historic drummer of ACDC? Well, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He played on like one album. Come on. Uh, but it was a historic album. Uh, no, there is no drummer for ACDC except for Phil Rudd. He is the I only know. drummer for ACDC. Chris Slade, Well, you know, Slade, you got to have a claim to fame somehow. And, yeah, I uh, guess so. <laughs> that's how they got their break, then so be it, you know? Yeah. Chris Slade, the drummer for a lot of other bands, but happened to play with ACDC for a little while. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So. <laughs> this comes from the person who worships ACDC. I, I so. do love ACDC, yes. Uh, but anyway, so I, I thought that song was pretty good. Uh, all of the tracks on that are, are very like that. So if that's the hair bandy kind of metal you like, then you'll probably enjoy all of them. Uh, I just thought that was the best of the five, so. Uh, but that's it. That's the track. Black Star, close your eyes. And now we move on to announcements and feedbacks. And this one we get to blaze right through because there are none. There are no <laughs> announcements. There's no feedback. So um, so we'll move right on to segment five, which is Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Yay! Yay! Or Yay. something, whatever. All right. So <laughs> tell us what we're cooking. All right. Uh, be excited about your own corner. <laughs> okay. I'll be excited. I still think that Yay. one day there's going to be a whole bunch of feedback that comes in and going, shut her up. But anyway, no. ba back to the recipe. Um, as I mentioned last week, summer is not the time to cook, especially in Missouri. It's hot. It's humid. It's it's bad. Um, but this item that I picked out this week is perfect from having to keep from slaving over a stove all day. Or you can take it to a weekend barbecue. Uh, don't lift or a field day. Or a field or day, exactly. Field day. Yes, perfect. Well, and they said earlier, field day is like a big barbecue. So there you go. Um, don't let the number of ingredients in the recipe scare you. Uh, <laughs> more than likely, you'll have all of them in your pantry anyway. And the sauce is what makes makes this dish so special because it's hard not to like ketchup, brown sugar, and a little buzzer, buzzard. Buzzard? Buzzard. Buzzard. Wow. Right. <laughs> a little butter drizzled over your beef brisket. Maybe maybe the title of the episode just changed. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but anyway, it's the recipe is for a uh, for pulled brisket sandwiches. Just make sure that you buy a beef brisket and not corned beef. I love corned beef. Yeah, Russ Russ loves corned beef, but so do I. Yeah, it it just doesn't. It's just not the it same. Probably does not make not good brisket. Yeah. No, no. But you you check all this in your slow cooker slash crock pot. And let it cook for eight or so hours, and poof, you have dinner. And you say all this, and you warned about the number of ingredients, which, by the way, are brisket, water, Worcestershire, cider vinegar, cloves, beef, bouillon, chili powder, ground mustard, cayenne, garlic, salt, ketchup, brown sugar, butter, hot pepper, and some Kaiser rolls. 
Do you put the Kaiser rolls in the? Uh, no, no, you don't mix no, that no, all no. in there. Pat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the entire recipe will of course be in the show notes, and it will actually explain to you that you put everything else into the mix, and then you put all of that crap on the Kaiser roll. You don't mix the Kaiser roll in. There you go. And of course, you could try your own variations with a a different brisket or different buns or uh, perhaps a baguette and make a really long-ass sandwich. (laughs) And if you happen to like different ingredients or you like a particular flavor, this is kind of like flavoring meat, so you can always throw in something else, too. There you go. Try that out. The the link to the information will be in the show notes. And, of course, the recipe itself will be in the show notes. So give that a try. Have some brisket. Stay outside. Picnic with your friends. Drink something, eat some beef. Ooh. Yeah. Drink lots of water. That's right. Drink lots of water. <laughs> Moving on, we uh, need to wrap up the show, and we're almost done. We're almost done. And actually, Yay. we're doing the social media roundup here, which is about the last thing in the show. And you'll note in this particular social media roundup that there is a significant change. So we'll see if anyone picks up on it. Okay, so this week in the social media roundup, we had no donations and subscriptions. We had, on Google+, Plus. we had Andrea Patrizia, Botchinger, I, yeah, I murder names, Dominique uh, Bolado, Pikes Peak Radio Amateur Association, ooh, we've been to Pikes Peak, yep. uh, Let's Talk Rock Radio Show. On Twitter, we had Pass the Joe, Miguel Lobos, and H-P-H-V-P-A-L-O-M-O. Well, let me H-P-H-V. go with H-V Palomo. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing whatever yeah. uh nothing on youtube nothing on the mailing list and we had merchandise, merchandise. sales bob w0tux bought something from us yay yeah. yep. an excellent call sign bob w0tux uh, <laughs> from k5tux <laughs> Are you guys but brothers? No, we're not brothers, and that's the thing. That is, uh, everyone has correctly spotted the difference. We had we had merchandise sales. It's actually a month old now. I didn't realize uh, that it was back in May that uh, Bob bought something from us, but he did, and you can too. And the information about doing that will be coming up shortly. Uh, but the best part about this outro is we can't do it right now because I don't have a soundboard. So the show's over, guys. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> bye bye now. Linux in the ham shack. Linux in the ham shack. Welcome to another edition of Linux in the Ham Shack. Richard, KB5JBV, and Russ, K5TUX. Linux in the Ham Shack.
Linux in the Hammond Shack. Shack.